0: Collins just told me he was going to steal my notes. <laughs> well, good morning to you all, and uh, thank you. Happy New Year to you all. Um, I hope that you had a blessed Christmas and New Year. I certainly noticed when I was uh, trying to do my belt up this morning that I had to suck it in a bit. <laughs> so... Um, I've got some work to do. Um, When Coughlin asked me to preach on Sunday, the 2nd of January, I thought, oh, thanks, mate, because it's a bit like getting the afternoon slot at a conference, you know? Hardly anybody's awake or there, but anyway, it's a blessing to see you all here. Well, our passage today is the very last one in James, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, you have your Bibles, please. Could you turn there now? It's been a long journey getting to this point. When I look back in my notes, I discovered that we started this book in September 2008. So it's taken us well over two years, and it's marvelous that so many of you are still here, and yes, Colin, are still awake. Although I can see some yawns coming already. Now, I'll spare you a blow-by-blow recounting of the topics covered, but I can say that I have been personally tremendously challenged by this book. God has changed me through this ministry um, that James has, has spoken out and it really is my earnest prayer that you too have found this amazing challenge in this book. However, that challenge isn't quite over, so let's read from the final two verses. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When James wrote this letter, it was to a certain formula. It was customary at that time for Greek letters to be written in three parts in much the same way that we today have stylized forms for things like business letters. So the first bit was an introduction that listed the names of the sender and the recipient. It was followed by a formal greeting, which inquired about the the recipient's health. And then there was a a Thanksgiving formula. Then the second part was a body, which was the whole purpose of the writing. And lastly, there was a conclusion that had appropriate remarks and farewell in it. Now, James has more or less followed that formula up till now, but for some reason... He's chosen to leave out that last bit, the remarks, and and farewell. But I'm guessing that if he saw fit to stand aside from that well-established custom, that he had a very good reason for it. So, although these last two verses might look quite small, they are large in importance. So, we shouldn't let our attention taper off. If we look back, we can see that James has spent a lot of time in his letter already making sure that we know what this truth is that he's speaking of that we shouldn't wander away from. It isn't something that's abstract or theoretical, but it is a living and active, and most importantly, it is a visible truth. It should be plainly apparent to everyone. So what has he been showing us? As a quick aid to memory... Here are the headings from the New King James Version for the various sections of text that we have covered. Now, I'm not going to read them all out because that will certainly send you to sleep. But if you just cast your eye down them, you can see that they lay out a path for us, a kind of symmetry of behaviour for the Christian. And what this symmetry demonstrates is that actually there is only one way for a believer to live, and that's laid out in Scripture. Scripture. There isn't one way for Dave and another way for John. We must do the same. We must be aligned in the same way and the world must be able to see that. So right now I want to talk about how the lived truth James speaks of, that alignment points the world right back to Christ. As an example of an alignment, I'd like to tell you about the Tunguska event. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? No, I found another unusual factoid, but here we go. It happened near the Podkamennaya Tunguska River, how do you like my Russian, in Russia on June the 30th, 1908, which I think was um, a little while after my granny was born. Now, early one morning, people saw this column of bluish light that was nearly as bright as the sun, and it shot across the sky. Okay. About ten minutes later, there was a flash and a sound that was similar to artillery fire. And that sound was accompanied by a shock wave that was so powerful that it actually knocked people right off their feet and broke windows, even hundreds of kilometers away. Imagine that was a big bang. Now most people who saw it, they said they heard the sounds and they felt the tremors, but they didn't see any explosion, which was very unusual. The explosion was so big that it registered on seismic stations right across Eurasia. And in fact, in some places, the shock wave was equivalent to a 5 on the Richter scale. And it also even produced atmospheric fluctuations in pressure that they could measure in Great Britain that far away. It was enormous. So what caused it? Well, today we believe that it's been caused by a big meteor, well, not a big meteor, actually a a sizable meteor or comet fragment, exploding 5 or 10 kilometres up in the atmosphere, above the Earth's surface. Now, depending on who you talk to, there's different ideas of what the size was, but there's a kind of a general consensus that it must have been, you know, tens of metres across. It doesn't sound very big, but it let off enough energy to be about the same as 1,000 times that of the Hiroshima bomb. And as a consequence, in Tunguska, It knocked over about 80 million trees in an area of about 2,000 square kilometres. I think that was pretty impressive. Now, it's those trees that I'd really like to talk about. And here's a picture of what they saw when scientists arrived on the scene some years later. Here's a picture. (laughs) No, no, you've gone too far. Ah, Bother. That's disaster. Go right down to the bottom. There you go. Okay. Those are the those. That's what they saw. Now, this this was a place that was very remote, and um, the scientists had to get all kinds of permission to go there. So it did take them some years to get there. But that's 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 what they saw. But the thing that really surprised them is that they didn't find any crater. You know, you'd expect that there would be an enormous hole of some kind with an explosion like this, but they couldn't find anything except a few ponds on the ground and they were so sure that something had to have hit the ground that they, they went to the most promising one and they, they drained it. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but they were trying to drain a hole in a swamp. Okay, and all they found at the bottom was a, a tree trunk. They couldn't find any pieces. But they didn't give up then because someone had figured out that if there isn't there wasn't any hole, then this thing must have blown up in the air. But because they were scientists, they still wanted to know where. Well, how could they do that when the atmosphere doesn't hold any evidence? I mean, if I, if I go over here and I poke a hole in the air and I walk away, you can't tell me where that hole is now. The fan's blown it around somewhere. You can't tell. So, how did they figure out where the epicentre of the explosion was? Well, they went up in the air and they took some pictures of the fallen trees And because there was a pattern to the way those trees had fallen, they could figure out where the epicentre of the explosion was. And that's where the illustration comes home to us. As Christians, we ought to be like those trees. Our similar alignment in behaviour, what the world sees of us, should point straight back to Christ and his explosive salvation. Now maybe you don't think of it as being explosive, but that's the way it really is, because salvation is radical and unexpected. Its effects will just knock us off our feet. As Colfein showed us a few weeks ago, we have made a very sudden U-turn. We were going this way, to this destination, but now we are going in the opposite direction. There are two aspects to this change of direction. One is spiritual, and one is natural. The first is invisible to the world we live in because it happens inside us. As sinners, we were definitely destined for hell and there was absolutely nothing we could do about it. There was no amount of good behavior that would save us. In the matter of salvation, God is completely unmoved by our good works. That flaw of sin that was carried inside every one of us made it impossible for us to make things right. It took a spiritual and hence unseen act on the part of one who was unflawed, who was perfect. Jesus, the son of man, son of God, sorry, came to earth as a man. He died on a cross for crimes he did not commit. But you know, his death wasn't anything to do with the laws of man. It was much more important. In dying, he accomplished a most astonishing thing because his death paid off a spiritual debt a most enormous debt that all mankind owed God because of our continuous sin. It made it possible for every person who will repent of their sin, accept Christ and follow him to have the sure hope of eternal life in heaven with God. But this great work is not visible here on earth. In the heavenly realms though, God rejoices as he writes another name in the book of life, And the angels rejoice with him. Are we all sure here today that our names are in that book? Because if they aren't, if you aren't sure, then I think you you really need to talk to somebody about that. While that spiritual U-turn might be invisible, its effects on our character are so profound that they must alter the outer visible man for everyone to see. And this is what James has been showing us so far because his counsel for living as a Christian is very much centred on doing how we ought to behave. And that behaviour should come both from a healthy respect of Almighty God and from a profound sense of gratitude for the salvation that he has given us at a time when we very much least deserved it. We were going to die, but Jesus saved us. Praise God. Now why would we choose to hide such a blessing? Surely we should do everything we can to share it and we can start by living out our faith as James has challenged us to do. That living faith will be a witness that points back to Christ just like those fallen trees drew the, drew the unbeliever's eye. Sorry. Just like those fallen trees pointed to the centre of the explosion as the trees drew the eye our lives should draw the unbeliever's heart to Jesus. Jesus. And that is real truth. That we should not be careless to wander from, or allow others to do so. Brethren, this text shows us that we have a responsibility as fellow believers to guard just not our own faith, but those who accompany us on the believers, who accompany us on the journey, as James commands us. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back. Notice that there is action there. Someone physically turns them back. Somebody had to go and stand in their way, say stop, or grasp them firmly by the arm. Wishing and hoping and watching won't do it. We can't be passive. Now there may be times when we are asked to intervene, as we have already read about in verses 14 and 16, where we heard call for the elders of the church, and we heard confess your sins to one another at other times though we might just have the evidence of our own eyes and our convictions as a fellow believer slips into grave error at that time the living work of our faith must be to act not to watch watching and whispering is passive and destructive but action and love is constructive and restorative Now, friends, I've just had a brother do this for me. I have recently been turned back, and it's really caused me to think hard about this whole process. Practically, unsolicited intervention can be a very tricky thing to do. I mean, how can we be in the right position to know that we can talk about sensitive subjects and be welcomed, not rejected, How do we avoid this trap of being seen as just a legalistic busybody? How can we do this? I believe we can start very simply by just getting to know each other. This will produce the relationships that are going to allow us to share freely in two directions. Inwardly, we can be confident that we can open up our hearts, unafraid that we will be able to reveal burdens and also to accept the directions of others when we have gone astray. Outwardly, we want to be able to pass on spiritual insights and counsel when we can. We really need to get past this place of, Hi, how are you? I'm fine. To somewhere like, well, actually, I'd appreciate some prayer for this difficulty I'm having. Or, John, there's something I've noticed lately that I really think we need to talk about. This position isn't going to come about, though, unless we work at it. Church has to be much more than a building that we come to on Sunday, sing a few songs, listen to some fellow droning on and on, and then go straight home and back to real life. Or so we might think. Church should be our life since we, all of us here, not this building, are the church. And we are alive although I am suspicious about the length of time some folks' eyes have been closed. Seriously, though, let's work on not thinking about church as being a place at a point in time and make it wherever we are at any time. I want to go on to talk about some practical aspects of this turning back process. Firstly, firstly, I think it's very obvious, but it still needs to be said that intimate relationships are not appropriate between members of the opposite sex outside marriage because sure disaster awaits us there. Secondly, I'm not suggesting that we need to get to know everyone in the church. Okay, that would be very difficult to get to know everybody deeply. It would be marvellous if we did do that. But we do need to get to know some people very well. It's one of the things to help us. Well, let's get people into our homes. Let's just get past that tidy home and fancy meal syndrome. Let's open our homes and be open to others' homes. Let's focus on the people and not on the places. Blokes, I want to talk very directly to you. We are especially bad at this sort of thing because, of course, cowboys don't cry. Yeah? Yeah? Hence, we need to try harder. And this is a place where worldly perceptions of what it takes to be a real man grievously interfere with the reality of what it takes to be a real Christian man. We shouldn't be trying to carry burdens around by ourselves. You know in your heart that the tension always spills over into our relationships with our wives, our children, and our workmates, and not in a good way. Get a life. Get a real mate. Fourthly, this may seem really obvious, but if our own spiritual position is weak, then we are going to be in a poor place three times over. Firstly, we probably won't even recognise error when it is right in our faces. Secondly, we will have no depth of knowledge to provide scriptural counsel, and it should never be worldly counsel that we should be providing. And thirdly, counselling can be exhausting and draining work for us personally. If we're weak to start off with, then we might not be able to finish that work properly. Hence, for us to be effective in this ministry, it is essential that we spend regular and extensive time in the study of God's word and in prayer. If we do not know his word, what are going to be our reference points? How will we know what he wants us to do? How will we know what is right and what is wrong? And then how will we know what to do about that? If we don't ask for his guidance in prayer, well, when will we hear him? God doesn't generally hang over our shoulders giving a life commentary like some kind of spiritual backseat driver. He knows that we won't learn much this way. He wants us to ask him to seek his will and become closer to him. If we are diligent in these matters, we will bear ripe and juicy fruit for both ourselves and for our brethren around us. Lastly, delivery of bad news is really difficult. But that doesn't mean we should shy away from it. If we feel the need to do it, we need to be prepared. So, pray a lot first. If it is possible without compromising confidentiality, then go and consult with a fellow believer whose wisdom you respect. Study God's word for authority. And then measure what you have to say against 1 Corinthians 13. Okay? We know this well. Is what I'm going to say in the Spirit. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Does not seek his own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The act of turning a sinner from the error of his ways, as James puts it, must be done in the right spirit, tested against we, what we know of the biblical standards for love, and very importantly, it is a course of action that is not reserved for occasional or minor slips, but it is reserved For serious deviation. If we take this duty on board lightly and then start running around applying it to every little thing, then we're going to do some serious damage to others and to ourselves and even to the reputation of God. And these are very high stakes, so we should be very careful about how we execute this work. Now, just in case you were wondering if this work is worth what seems to be very considerable bother. James goes on to give the importance of this act in verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now we know from the context of the preceding verse where it said, brethren, if anyone among you, that James is talking specifically about the case of the wandering believer. But it does occur to me, though, that verse 20's message is just as true for those times when we are able to play a part in the salvation of an unbeliever. So we shouldn't discount the message in that that case. And the message is profound. Firstly, we see these two words, anyone and someone. This tells us to be on guard and to look all around. Error can happen in anyone's life. No one is immune, from the pastor to the very newest convert. Secondly, that's someone who is going to work with anyone, but it could be you. It doesn't need to be an elder or a deacon, or any one of the multitudes of offices that men have established in the church that don't impress God at all. What it takes is a person who has recognized the stakes. Let him know that he is doing a very significant thing. He is prepared. He isn't just going to put a bandage on a minor scrape. No, he is going to save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. There is nothing inconsequential whatsoever to be seen from either of those outcomes. Have you ever thought that it would be nice to make God smile. Not because you did something funny, or you told him a joke, but just because you were obedient. Because he saw you take a small step up in the journey of sanctification, and just inch ever so much that much closer to being like Christ. For an all-powerful, wise, and knowing God, there is nothing material that we can offer in thanksgiving for the enormous, fantastic, gigantic, unbelievable thing he has done for us. But maybe, through obedience, now and again, we can make him smile. Maybe we can bring him joy. Do you think that covering a multitude of sins and saving a soul from death might do that? Well, to convince you, here's what Luke has to say at chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. (coughs) Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us act today to bring joy to our Heavenly Father through living a life that walks the line of His truth, so that others may be drawn to Him life that covers sin and saves souls. Let us pray. Father, as we face the unknowns of a new year, we recognize that inasmuch as there will be joyous times, there will also be difficult times. At those times, Lord, I I pray that you would send someone to help us. Or Lord, if we see that need in someone else, that we would be prepared to go and help them. Father, as we face this new year, I pray most earnestly, Lord, that all of us would be provoked by your Holy Spirit to really start living out Christ in us so that the world can see Christ and come to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colin, are you up for another song?